Parsha Shemini. What we'll deal with in Mitzvah Shemini this week's Parsha is the Indian of keeping kosher. We have a very clear, the Psukim very clearly delineate some of the Inyanim, some of the areas of kosher. Zosachayasha Tochlud is the animal you should eat, Mikol Behema. And we have quite a number of the actual halachas of what constitutes a kosher animal, what constitutes an animal that isn't kosher, etc. But before we actually dig into some of the actual halachas and categories of animals, I want to focus on something that I think is very much misunderstood. We have a concept in the Torah called a chok, and we have a mishpat. Normally, the way that's translated is a mishpat is something that a human being can understand. Dinim, for instance, you have to have torts, you have to have laws of damages or laws of boundaries because it makes sense, it's logical. If you have a community, if you have a society, you have to have laws because if you don't have laws, you're going to have chaos. We normally think of a mishpat as logical laws and a chok is the type of halacha, the type of Torah commandment that makes no sense. Paraduma, for instance. We assume what that means, paraduma, is something that's illogical, meaning to say it's a very strange halacha. If you're, you use the you use the ashes of the paraduma to make a person who is tummy tar, and yet the people who prepare the paraduma become tummy themselves. It's considered one of the chukim, one of the illogical, un, not capable of being understood halachas. That, however, is false. A para, the halach of paraduma and a chok in general is not something that's illogical. It's something that's not as easily accessible to mankind to understand. The Medrash Rabbin Bamidbar says to us clearly, Hashem says to Moshe, To you I will reveal the reason for paraduma. Meaning to say, there is a very clear logic behind it. There's a very clear reason. Most human beings are incapable of understanding the depth, the profundity, the system behind it. Moshe Mina was. But in general, every chok has a reason, oftentimes much too deep, much too profound for the average person to understand. So in that sense, I'd like to focus on the halachas of kashras in general and see if we could better understand them. Because typically, the way we understand why is it that if a cow has... Uh, if an animal has split hooves and it chews its cuds, it's kosher. And if it doesn't, it's not kosher. It's assumed that it's a chok. It's just one of those things which we can't understand at all. And that is very, very far from the truth. The Marzu explains that a blind man will not be able to see. But that's because he's blind. But if he were given sight, he'd be able to see very clearly. And with that as a mushal, I'd like to begin with the, the following. The first possible we'll deal with it by Dabra Shem Moshevel Aaron Lemolim. Hashem said to Moshe and Aaron, saying, Over to them, Dabru Abne Israel, speak to Bne Israel, Lemar, saying to them, Zosachaya Shatochlu. This is the Chaya, the wild animal that you should eat. Mikola Behema Asherla Arts, from all of the domesticated animals on the ground. Now, clearly, Chaya is one type of grouping of animal, Behema is another type of grouping of animals. Normally, a chaya refers to an animal that is not domesticated. A deer is an animal that runs wild. You could pen it in, you could fence it, you could breed it in captivity, but its normal state is to be wild. And a cow, sheep, a goat are domesticated animals. They're comfortable in mankind's proximity, and they're a very different sort. The problem with this pasuk is that it seems to use the two, chaya and behima, in a very interchangeable manner, Speak to Rehazel saying, these are the chayas, this is the wild animal that you should eat from all the behemoth. In any case, Rashi brings down the Medjushan that what the Torah is teaching us here is something very, very deep. And that is that the reason why Hashem commanded the Jewish people and the Jewish people only in the laws of Kashris is because they will have life. And the Medjushan brings a mushal. He says a doctor was called in to visit two patients. To one patient, he was very strict and gave a very exact diet. He should eat this amount of this type of food, this amount of this type of food. He shouldn't eat this. The next patient that the same doctor went to visit, the doctor said, let him eat whatever he wants, let him have whatever he's interested in, and, and with that he left. 
Someone asked the doctor, why is it to one patient you're so strict with the diet, the other one you say you eat what you want? He explains to the doctor, the first patient that I visit, visited will live. He's quite capable of living, and therefore his diet is very important because he needs to regain his strength, he needs the energy, and therefore the diet is very carefully prescribed to allow him to have a speedy recovery. Whereas the second man I visited has no hope. He's going to die. He might as well at least enjoy his last days here. <clears throat> Why make his life difficult? Explains the Medjushan Truma that the cholesterol as a whole have an neshama that was created to live forever. And because they were given such a neshama, Hashem gave very specific halachas, very specific acts that they should do and that they shouldn't do, because for a neshama that lives forever, these mitzvahs, <clears throat> these prescribed activities of doing and not doing are significant. While the Gentile who keeps the seven b'nei, mitzvahs b'nei Noach specifically because Hashem commanded to will have a portion in the world to come, but he has a very different neshama, and his neshama to begin with isn't created to live forever in the same way. It is the Jewish people that Hashem commanded with these mitzvahs because the Jewish people were given a very specific neshama, a neshama that will last forever, and it's not in this world that these mitzvahs have any real value. <clears throat> it's strictly for the neshama that lives on for eternity. And I'd like to focus on what the Medrash is explaining to us and what the concept is. If you were to look at a picture of a physician back in the early 1810s, 1820s, you might notice that he was doing things that we today would consider very strange. I remember very vividly seeing a picture of a doctor in an operating theater teaching surgery. And all the students were gathered around. It was an amphitheater. And they were all watching as the surgeon, the teacher, was operating and demonstrating. And the only thing that was really unusual about the picture was that the doctor himself was in street clothes. Everyone around him was also wearing just regular clothing, and the doctor was openly breathing right into the patient's open abdomen. Now, that today would be considered murder, because we're well aware that the average breath contains millions of germs, various diseases, all types of microbes that could actually destroy a person. But medical knowledge until the 1870s was very, very raw, and weren't aware of these concepts. What we know as the germ theory wasn't known then. And interestingly enough, if you watch the Civil War, the amount of casualties that occurred, and the death rate per casualty was actually frightening, because many, many Civil War injuries ended up in an amputation. A person had to lose the leg or the arm because it had to be cut off to save the rest of his body. And yet, astonishingly, and the mortality rate following amputations was about 40%. It means about 40% of the patients who had an arm or a leg cut off died, but not because of the surgery, but because of something else. And no one could figure it out. All of the doctors, all of the surgeons couldn't figure it out. But for some <clears throat> unknown reason, 40% of the patients, almost half the patients died shortly thereafter. Now, we now understand very clearly why this is, and that's because the amputated arm, leg, etc. was taken off and the rest of the body became infected. But in those days, no one knew about it. It wasn't until Louis Pasteur came around and he was the one who founded the germ theory. Now, his concept really is something that we understand now as simple, we understand as obvious, but mankind then didn't. And the discovery of microbiology, the discovery that there are there are tremendous amounts of different diseases and infections that are breathed out in the air, and the need to keep the patient sterile, to keep him clean from these, was something that was unknown. Infectious disease as an entire concept didn't exist. Now, we take it as a given now, now it's obvious but when in 1885, when Pasteur began with these ideas, and he started really boiling milk as, a, as an example, because he proved that if you boil the milk, it was less likely to become, and people were less likely to become sick from it. In fact, the concept of pasteurized milk comes from Louis Pasteur, because he boiled the milk to kill the microbes in it. 
In any case, when he discovered a cure for rabies along the same process, because his concept was that the body becomes infected with disease, and if we then put in antibodies into the body, it will kill the disease, he was mocked by science. Doctors, scientists mocked him, all these unseen things, you can't see them, you can't, they're just there. And it wasn't until decades later that his understanding became common knowledge, and now we take it as a given that it's the infectious diseases that can't be seen by the eye that will kill a person. Now again, if you were to go back in the 1830s and say to a doctor, listen, on your scalpel, there are untold amounts of, of, of bacteria, viruses, <clears throat> all types of diseases. What you have to do is you have to wear gloves, and you have to wear a mask, and you have to boil all your instruments. They would have laughed. What do you mean, boil the instruments, wear a mask, gloves? What are you talking about? I can't see them. They don't exist. What we take for a given now, <clears throat> mankind was blind to for millions of years. Chovaz Ovovus explains to us that every physical particle in existence has a spiritual counterpart. If there's a rock, there's a spiritual counterpart. If there's water, it has a spiritual counterpart. And the higher up the level of development of that item, the higher the spiritual counterpart to it is. The Chovaz Ovovus explains to us very clearly that every animal has a nefesh. The animal has a nefesh, it's a live, <coughs> vibrant part. It's not a neshama, it doesn't have a soul, <coughs> but a dog has an affinity. A dog has <coughs> certain drives, certain inclinations. As an example, <coughs> and I'm going to borrow some material from Shmuz number 13, Nefesh Bahami, Nefesh there was a fellow <coughs> in the high school who had grown up with a dog. His father bought him a puppy when he was a little boy, and then he came to the yeshiva, it was an, a dorm yeshiva, and it was quite difficult on the now-grown dog that his master would leave him. But in any case, every six weeks or so, the master would go back to his dog, and the dog was very, very overjoyed to see his master who returned. But in his joy to see his master, <clears throat> the master had a problem. Why? Because the dog, when seen his master in six weeks, would run up, and in his excitement, he would relieve himself all over his master's pants leg. And that was a bit of a problem for this fellow coming home from yeshiva. But here's the point. A dog has a live, vibrant part. The dog almost has a personality. It certainly does certain things. The dog will go into heat and it'll dig under a fence. Cats will jump through plate glass windows. There are various behaviors that a dog, a cat, any animal will do. The Chovah of Ovis explains to us that Hashem implanted into the nefesh of the behemoth all of the instincts, drives, and aptitude that are needed to keep that animal alive. The robin hungers for the worm. The cat hungers for the mouse. The robin doesn't think about the general availability as well as the nutritional needs that it has. It has a natural inclination. It desires the worm. The cat (coughs) desires the mouse. Hashem implanted into each animal all of the instincts that it needs to keep itself alive. There was an interesting article in National Geographic that biologists had discovered some Siberian tiger cubs that had been offered, orphaned close to birth. The mother had been killed, and there were these little cubs in the wild, and the biologists took them back into the lab and brought these cubs up on bottled milk. They began feeding them, and the cubs flourished, and the biologists recognized that they had a problem. They can only keep the cubs for a certain amount of time, to a certain age, and then they would have to release them back into the wild. But there was no mother tiger to teach these cubs how to hunt, how to track, how to stalk, how to consume the animal that was their prey. So the biologists, having no choice, allowed the cubs to grow as much as they could and still remain in captivity, and then they released them into the wild. And they described that from the moment they were released, these now somewhat grown cubs began hunting, stalking the deer, which was their ideal food source. And they knew exactly how to take it down, how to kill it. They knew which parts to eat first. Because Hashem implanted within the animal's soul, in the nefesh abahami, all of the instincts, drives necessary to keep that animal alive. That part of the animal is a nefesh. 
It's live, it's vibrant. When the animal dies, nefesh evaporates, it just disappears. But as long as the animal is alive, that nefesh has all of the wisdom, all of the imprinted understanding that's necessary to keep that animal alive and to bring the next species into existence. Two bullfrogs don't sit down and say, it's time for us to settle down. They naturally have a desire to mate, they naturally have a desire to bring up the next generation, and all of the instincts necessary for the survival of that species are implanted into the animal, often at the expense of the animal itself. In the Arctic, specifically in the South Arctic, emperor penguins are known to go to tremendous lengths to ensure the fact that the next generation comes about. The female penguin will lay a very large egg. If this egg touches the ice, it cracks and will never hatch. The female, after laying the egg, will gently sort of waddle over to the male. The male puts his two feet together, and the female gently slides this egg from her feet over to his feet, and then there's a little sort of pouch that covers, a little flap fur cover that will cover the egg, and the male will sit there. The female will then go back to feed. Now, oftentimes feeding means waddling across the ice for a great distance until she finds an opening in the ice. She'll then go hunt, and she'll feed for a number of weeks, sometimes in the months. The male will stand there in the freezing South Arctic winter, winds blowing, snow falling. He will stand there for weeks on end, literally not just freezing, but consuming his body fat, literally starving to death because he will lose up to 25% of his body weight during his time period, all the while waiting for the female to come back. And when the female comes back, if she's done a successful job, she now has enough body fat to convert into milk, the egg will hatch, and she will be there ready to feed the now newborn infant. But here's the point. The male and the female don't have the intelligence to recognize the what-ifs. What if this, what if that. They don't think about the fact that they want little penguin baby to mature and be a future penguin generation. But Hashem implanted into the penguin all of the instincts, desires needed to keep itself alive as well as the next generation. The part that holds all of that is the nefesh. It's a live, vibrant part of the animal that allows it to do that which it needs to do. The human being as well has a nefesh abahami. The I who am speaking, the I who thinks, am comprised of two different parts. A nefesh asichli, a seichel, that's an ashama, pure, brilliant understanding, and a nefesh abahami. There's a half of me that only wants to do what's right, what's good, what's noble, what's proper. That's my nefesh asichli, that's an ashama. That's a part of the human that drives him to do everything that's good, that's wonderful <clears throat> to accomplish. And then there's another part of me. The other part of me is pure nefesh abahami, pure <clears throat> animal instincts, pure desires. And I <clears throat> am similar to a behemoth in the sense that all of the instincts necessary to keep me alive, as well as bring about the next generation, are contained within me. The distinction between a human and the Behema are in two areas. Number one, the human has another part to him. He has a seichel. He has a neshama. And number two, that seichel can control the behema part of him. The I whom speaking to you am comprised of two <clears throat> different parts, and each of those parts are fighting. <clears throat> each of those parts become dominant or weaker depending on which one is used, much like a muscle that with use becomes stronger, with disuse becomes weaker, <clears throat> the Nefesh sikhli or the Nefesh bahami becomes stronger with use or becomes weaker with disuse. But one or the other is always gaining primacy. The more a person uses a Seichel, the more a person uses the Nefesh sikhli the stronger it becomes. The more he uses the Nefesh bahami the stronger it becomes. But the I whom speaking to you am ever in flux, ever in change with one part or the other, always becoming more dominant. Now let's focus on the psukim of our parsha. And right before this parsha, the pasuk says, "Kini Hashem Hamal Eschem Eretz Mitzrayim Liosachem Lokim 
I am Hashem your God who took you out of Mitzrayim to be your God. Vayisim kedoshim, and you shall be holy ki kadosh ani, because I am holy. And right after that begins the parsha and zostor sabahima vaof These are all of the animals you should eat. Pasuk memhe and memvav. And Asfurno says that's exactly what the Torah is teaching us. <coughs> Explains Asfurno on that Pasuk, Zosi Kavanas Vitam Lamala. What is the reason? <coughs> Why is it that the Torah warns us about eating forbidden foods? Because this is an attempt to make you holy. The reason why we're warned not to eat certain foods, and if we do eat certain foods to eat them in particular ways, is so that we shall be holy just as Hashem is holy. Now, typically, when a person reads a post like this, they say, I don't get it, I'm not even holy. I understand maybe you uh, learn and make you holy, dominating makes you holy, doing chesed, I get that, being helpful, being kindly, being <clears throat> humble, I understand how that makes you holy. But how does eating meat and milk not make you holy? And if you eat a camel, that makes you not holy. But if you eat uh, a deer that was shechted, probably, yes, holy. How does that work? And the answer to that question is what the Chovaz of Olves explains to us. He says that all of the activities that the Torah forbade, the Torah forbade them because they damage me. Most of the activities that the Torah forbids a person from doing are because they give strengthening, an inordinate amount of strength, to the nefesh of Bahami. Macholas asuras, forbidden foods, explains Chavaz give a very strong amount of energy and strength to the nefesh of Bahami. They give it a extreme amount of power, and it becomes dominant over the nefesh of Sikhli. The reason why the Torah forbids us from eating certain foods is because it will make that part of the human stronger, and it will make us less holy because the nefesh sikhli won't be able to come to the fore, won't be able to feel it as much. And to understand this, I think we need to understand a little bit more how this functions and how it works. The Mepharshim explained that we're commanded not to eat predators. All of the kosher animals that exist, not a one is a predator. Why? <clears throat> because when you consume the nefesh of the animal, when you consume the flesh of the animal, part of the nefesh comes with it. A predator has a nature that it's aggressive, it's cruel, it pounces, it tears. If you eat the flesh of that animal, you're going to consume not just the flesh, but part of the nefesh as well, and you're going to incorporate within you some of that nature of cruelty, some of that nature of being aggressive. The Kliyakar is very specific when he says, why is it that the Torah forbids us from drinking blood? What's wrong with blood? Ki adam hua nefesh. Within the blood there's an extra amount of nefesh, more than just in the flesh. And what happens, explains the Kliyakar, is exactly what the Pasuk says, that you and your children will be achzorim, will be cruel. How does blood make you cruel? So if you understand the human being in a simplistic manner, if you're blind to how the human being functions, you will not know the answer to that. It doesn't make sense. How does my son become cruel? But once you understand that when you take in certain foods, you take in not just the physical property, but you take in the spiritual dimension as well, and the blood <clears throat> contains more of the nefesh, when you absorb the blood into your body, you become more cruel because you absorb some of the nefesh. And then when you have children... And that's given over genetically because your nefesh of Bahami became different, became stronger, and you're giving that over to the next generation. Now, most people don't understand that. Most people are blind to it. As a man in the 1820s, if you would explain to him that there are germs, and when you breathe out, there are literally millions of microbes that you're emitting, and you're killing your patients when you're amputating their legs. You're killing them. They would have laughed at you in... Western thought, from the scientific perspective, we don't understand these things because science is very skilled at measuring physical properties, how long, how heavy, how dense. But these are elements that are well beyond science's understanding. Science, as wonderful as it is, and the applied science, the technology, as impressive as it is, is only dealing with one small realm of the world. They're dealing with physicality. 
They may be very knowledgeable in the physical world. They may be very, very attuned to it, but they're clueless to entire other dimensions of the human being and other dimensions of the world. Why is it that a scientist can be so foolish when it comes to his own marriage, his own children, whatever it may be? Psychology is an extraordinarily undeveloped science in this country. And in Western thought in general, the idea of what makes people do what they do is almost unknown. Because I'll reveal to us that a big part of it has to do with the different dimensions of I. Within me, there's a pure seichel that only wants to do what's good, what's right, what's proper, that only wants to serve Hashem. And within me, there is a behemoth that couldn't care less. Half of my personality, half of the I that thinks, is made up of appetites, desires, hungers, and cravings. That part cannot see you. That part doesn't care about you. That part cares about one thing and one thing only. I want it now. And the greatness of the human is training himself to listen to his neshama, allowing that part to become more powerful, allowing that part to come to the fore, and lessening the effect of the nefesh bahami. But the only way to do that is to follow the Torah system, because the Torah, which was written by Hashem, who is the creator and one who fundamentally understands the system, gives us very specific directions and very specific ways of doing things. Chazal described that tray food, machalas asuras, are metamtem the lave, dead in the heart. What does that mean? When you go to the dentist and he gives you Novocaine, and for the next hour he warns you, don't speak. Don't speak in public because you might well be drooling and you won't even feel it. Because your lip becomes deadened. You don't feel the spittle as it rolls down your lip. Why? Because it's dead. Tray food deadens the heart. What that means in plain, simple language is it makes it harder to feel the holiness of Shabbos, makes it harder to enjoy learning, it makes it harder to have mercy. I've had many, many conversations with people who are not from, and I could feel, you could almost feel the layer of thickness. They don't understand, they can't get certain concepts. They can be very, very intelligent, but there's a certain covering. And Chazal described that tray food and tamtim lave, and again, the reason is because in this balance between the nefesh abahami and nefesh asichli, it gives an extra strengthening to the nefesh abahami, and the only way that one can avoid it is by following exactly and specifically the Torah's system. Now, with that as an introduction, let's focus on one more point. This parsha is very detailed as to which animals you may eat, which you can't, which simonim, which signs are proper, which aren't, etc. And normally our attitude, I think, is, listen, this is nice to know in theory, but it has nothing to do with me because, listen, I buy prepared foods. I'm not on the farm. I don't know how to hold a knife. I don't know which part to shecht. I don't know what a cow is. I don't know. I mean, I guess I could tell a cow from a, from a, from a goat, but it has nothing to do with me. I eat only at kosher restaurants. I rely on the best hechsherim. So I don't need to know this exactly. But let's read one Pasuk in the end of Perak Yud Aleph. Pasuk Memzayin says, L'havdil ben ben for you to separate from that which is pure and impure, u'ben ha-nechelas, and between the animal that's eaten, u'ben ha-machaya and the animal that's not eaten. Rashi on the Pasuk says, lo hashona, it's not sufficient that you know these halachas, it's not enough for you to learn them, but you have to know them, recognize them, and be very, very familiar with them. Now apparently what Rashi is telling us is that these are halachas that you have to know. You have to be very familiar with them. Now it could be that in our time and day and age, it could be that we don't have to be exactly familiar with how to shecht and exactly how much of the simonim have to be cut for it to be considered kosher shechita, because again, we do have things that we rely on. We have a Rav HaMachshir, we have a Shulchan Aruch, we do have a system, but I believe what Rashi is telling us is that it's not sufficient, we do have to know them, and it certainly is a mitzvah to be aware of them. So I'd like to spend a few minutes now on discussing this concept. What makes food kosher? And let's begin with the behemas and the chayas, because that's the first part discussed. So the Pesach tells us, <clears throat> Kol mafreses parts of Shoah Shesa, 
What type of animal should you eat? It has to be two signs. Number one, it has to have completely split hooves. The hooves have to be completely split into two separate parts. And number two, it has to be mount like geira. It has to ruminate, it has to regurgitate its food and then re-chew it again, swallow it a second time. Those are what's known as the two simonim, split hooves and regurgitate its food. Interestingly, the Torah in Parshas Re'eh tells us that there are three behemah three behemahs that are kosher, and seven chayas that are kosher. Zosu behemah shetochlu, these are the behemahs you should eat, shor, sek, sovim, sevizim. It's specifically the behemahs that are kosher, the cow, sheep, and goat. And there are seven chayas that are kosher, deer, bison, gazelle, antelope, ibex, addicts, and giraffe. Altogether, there are ten kosher animals. Now here, in our parsha, the Torah doesn't list them. The Torah just tells us that you have to eat the animals that are split of hooves and regurgitate. And then the Torah tells us four that are exceptions. The Torah says there are four animals that have one sign and not the other. There are three that will, in fact, regurgitate, but don't have a split hoof. Then the gamal, the arnevis, <coughs> the gamal, the arnevis, and the shafon. And there's one that has split hooves, but doesn't regurgitate, that's a chazir. But that's the only four <coughs> that the Torah tells us. Other than that, the Torah seems to imply, like, I don't know, there are many, many, and who knows how many, uh, any animal that has split hooves and, and chews its cud <coughs> is okay. But again, in Parshas Re'eh, we're told very clearly that altogether there are only ten, and of the others, there are only four that have one sign and not another. And we're going to get to this point a little bit later, but again, the first thing for an animal to be kosher, obviously, it has to be from the ten, either the three behemahs or the seven chayas, that are the types of animals that are kosher. Again, the cow, sheep, or goat, or if it's a chaya, Deer, bison, gazelle, antelope, ibex, annex, or giraffe. Now, if it's a bird, then it works a little bit differently. In the bird family, the Torah only tells us that there are 24 birds that are not kosher. Other than those 24, every bird is kosher. The general rule is that of the thousands and thousands of birds out there, only 24 are not kosher. Now, the problem that we have is that we don't have a masora for most of those birds. So only the birds that we actually have a Mesora, we have a tradition as to which birds are not in that 24 forbidden group are we allowed to eat. And for that reason, we only eat a small selection of birds. Obviously, chicken, <coughs> turkey is now accepted within our <coughs> within most of our Mesora. Just a few amount of birds, but again, from the Torah perspective, everything but 24 are permitted. And the third category of food that we have to be guarded in, we're allowed to eat some and not other, are, is fish. And fish, <coughs> Torah gives us simonim, <coughs> anything that has fins and scales. Rashi explains scales are much like when they would go to war, the armor had sort of plates, small plates. If you look at the fish, they're very small plates, those are the scales, and the fins <coughs> are what it steers with. Any animal that has the scales will also have the fins, and that's the sign of a kosher fish. So these are the three groupings. We have the ten of the behemoth chayas. The animal, the birds are almost all kosher except the 24 that aren't. And amongst the fish, it has to have the requirement of snapir vekaskeset, of scales and fins. Now, in addition to this, there are other halachas that are required to make an animal kosher to be consumed. They're not really dealt with in our Pasha. And interestingly enough, many of them are not dealt with at all. Let's start with the most obvious one. If you have a kosher animal, be it a cow, be it a sheep, be it a goat, you have to shech that animal in the right manner. The halachas of shechita are very specific and very exact. There are five different psulim, five different things that have to be, that could potentially invalidate a shechita. And Sefer Chinuch, when describing this, calls it a mitzvah. He calls it a mitzvah, and then he explains where this mitzvah is written in the Torah. He says in Dvarim, Perak Yud Beis, Pasuk Chavalaf, Hashem says to Moshe, 
you shall slaughter from your cows and your sheep, as I have commanded you. But if you search throughout the entire Torah, you will not find that commandment. Hashem says to Moshe, <clears throat> tell the Jewish people that when they want to slaughter their cows and their sheep, when they want to eat it, they should do it in exactly the manner that I prescribed to you already. But then you'll search from Bereshus <clears throat> all the way straight through the Torah, and you won't find any such description. And this is <clears throat> one of the examples of <clears throat> what's the Torah Shebeksav and the Torah Shebaal And I want to focus on this because oftentimes people make a mistake. Certainly if people are uneducated, they have this attitude of, well, the rabbis came along and they learned out new things, or they invented things, or they interpreted things, uh, something of that like. That concept is patently false. Any halacha that we keep, if it's a deraisa for sure, <clears throat> is because Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai what it is that you should do and what it is that you should not do. Some, but a very few, a very few of those halachas are written down in the Torah Shebeksav. <clears throat> you have to wear tefillin. You're told to wear tefillin, but you're not told at all what they are. The totafos benenecha should be some kind of sign between your eyes, osa yadecha, an os on your hand, but you're not told anything about them. And there are ten halachal emotion messinais, ten specific laws about tefillin that were given by Hashem to Moshe and given down generation after generation. They're not mentioned in the book. The book has but a short detail, <clears throat> some kind of sign between your eyes and something on your arm, tie them. But the details, the vast details, were not written in the book, but they were given exactly from Hashem to Moshe Rabbeinu with precision and handed down generation after generation. Whenever you see Chazal looking for the Pasuk, looking for the source, the halacha was known, they're then trying to find within the Torah, where do you see it? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But the point is that the exact halacha and how to do it was given to Moshe and then handed down. Hashem commanded Moshe exactly how to shech karbonos. You have to cut both simon in the esophagus and the trach. It has to be fully done. It has to be without a grum. There can be no interruption. There can be no pressing. It has to be just the blade itself. Hashem showed Moshe Rabbeinu exactly how to do it. And Moshe Rabbeinu had that as a Masorah. He taught Yeshua, <clears throat> taught the Zakanim, and that was given over. Now when it came time to shech the animals, which are not for kachim, Hashem said, do it in the same way. But you have to understand the role of Torah Shemalpeh and the role of Torah Shemalpeh. Torah Shemalpeh is that which was given by Hashem to Moshe, the huge body of halacha and understanding of Hashem's das that was given over to the Jewish nation. The Torah Shemalpeh is at best in super abbreviated notes, highly, highly abbreviated notations, which sometimes can be useful for deducing what the halacha is. However, very, very inaccurate and very unreliable. A mushal that I've heard used that sometimes can help a little bit is imagining that you went to a class. Imagine that some professor gave a very detailed class in chemistry, biology, whatever it might have been, and someone was taking notes. If you went to the lecture, the notes, although they're quite abbreviated, makes sense to you because it brings back that whole body of knowledge. But if you didn't attend the lecture, the notes are meaningless. In a sense, you could think of the Torah Shabbat in that way, and that if you attended the lecture, if you had the entire Torah Shabbat if you had that Masorah from Moshe given over, the writing in the book, the Torah Shabbat is can be used to bring back understanding, could be used to refer to. And in, in a sense, that is not a bad mushal and can help us understand, but here's the point. The point is that huge, huge bodies of Allah are not written in the Torah, yet they remain Doraisas, they're Torah obligations. One of them, again, is the obliga- obligation to shecht an animal. And if you hit the animal over the head, it could have been the most kosher animal in the world, but if you kill it in any manner other than shkita, that animal that you're going to eat is treif and damages your neshama the same way as if it were a different animal, as eating a tiger or eating a donkey would damage your soul if you take an animal that was improperly shechted it could have been a kosher animal while it stood but if it was improperly slaughtered it will damage your soul in the same way 
So <clears throat> after we know which animals it is that we're allowed to eat, the next halach we have to know is how to shecht them, <clears throat> and that's the halach shechita, which are very complex, <clears throat> very involved, many, many simonim in Shulchan Aruch. The next halach in terms of food being kosher is <clears throat> we have a losa say not to eat blood. Now the problem is that all meat contains blood. And if you're going to take a piece of meat and cook it in a pot, that blood is going to come out, and that's now treif. It will then re-enter the meat and make that meat treif as well. So the only way that you could eat meat that's cooked is if you remove the blood. Now the problem is that the blood permeates the meat. How do you get the blood out? So the simplest system that Chazal gave us for doing this is to salt the meat. Salt has an absorbent property. It absorbs the blood, and when you, in the right way, in the right time, put the salt fully covering the surface of the meat, it draws out the blood, and assuming that it remains there long enough and it was done in the right way at the right time, it has drawn out all of the blood, and now that meat has a chazaka that there's no blood in it. Once you've salted the meat properly and it's removed all of the blood, then you don't have to worry about anything that's inside the meat, even if it looks red or whatever, the actual dam has been removed and anything left over is just considered like coloring and it doesn't have any deleterious effect. That meat is kosher. The other way to remove blood is by roasting. The kaveh, the liver, is so permeated with blood that there's no way you could take all the blood out with any other way other than roasting. And for that reason, liver to be consumed has to be roasted. But for all meat, roasting is considered a good way to remove the, the blood. But again, either salting or roasting for most of the flesh is the way to remove the the blood. The next part of making <clears throat> meat consumable as kosher meat is you have to remove the chalev, <clears throat> the fats that one is not allowed to eat. On the behemoth, <clears throat> there are various organs <clears throat> that are covered with a covering of chalev, a fat that is forbidden, and <clears throat> there are certain segments of fat, <clears throat> again, that are removed, that, that are forbidden to be, to be eaten. For this, to know what is chalev and to know where they are and what part is and isn't fats that are permitted or forbidden, one needs a Kabbalah, one needs to be shown by a Rebbe who has a Mesorah, who has a Mesorah. And once you learn it, it's clear, it's obvious, but it's only by Mesorah, only given over teacher to student, teacher to student, and it's been given over for, again, literally thousands of years. After that, there's one more part that re- is required to be removed, and that's the Gid Hanasha. When Yaakov Avinu fought with the Tsar of Esav, the Tsar of Esav touched him on the leg, Al-Kain lo yochlu Yisrael's Gid Hanasha. From that point on, the Torah warns us that the Klaisol are not allowed to eat the Gid Hanasha. The Gid Hanasha is a tendon that runs in the back of the leg, and trebring removes that tendon. Trebring means that the entire tendon as one piece is pulled out from the hind quarter of the cow, the sheep, or the goat, and by once it's pulled out, the rest of the meat is allowed to be eaten. However, trebring, to take out that sinew, I don't know if it's a sinew or tendon, I apologize, my knowledge of biology on this is, is lacking, but it, it's, it's a gid, it's a hard sort of a, almost you could think of it, it's, in any case, it's, it's the gid, the sinew or the tendon, that part has to remove, be removed from the entire back part of the animal. The problem is that oftentimes when you're pulling it out, it will rip. Now, if it rips, it's almost impossible to get the rest of it out. Trebring is a very great skill. It's something that's learned. Again, it's taught from teacher to student, teacher to student down the generations. But it's not at all simple and not at all easy. In Eretz Yisrael, they still, in some places, do treber. They still will remove the Gidonosha, in which case you could eat the hindquarters. But in most countries, certainly in America, they no longer do it because, again, it is too difficult. And in a typical slaughterhouse in America, what they'll do is the entire hindquarters, the entire back of the animal, they'll give over to the non-kosher section of the slaughterhouse. Typically, the slaughterhouses have a kosher section and a non-kosher section. And when they slaughter the cow, you know, the sheep, or the goat, what they'll do is they'll give the entire back part over to the um, to the non-kosher, and they don't traber. We don't typically have T-bone steak because the T-bone comes from the back. And again, in theory, it it can be made kosher because all you need to do is, is traber, take out the entire gid 
entire back of the sinew tendon, but um, because it's difficult, we no longer do it. And But once it's done, that part, again, would be kosher. So these are the things that basically need to be done to meat. Now, meat is different than fish because fish, number one, requires no shechita. The blood of fish is kosher. As a matter of fact, the halach and shulchan aruch is that you could drink fish blood. You need some sign, some hecker to show that it's not blood of a uh, chicken or blood of a of an animal because it looks very similar. It's red and it might be marazayin. But assuming that you have a sign, something that indicates clearly that this is fish blood, you could consume fish blood, you could drink it. Fish don't need shechita because these halachas apply to the behemoth chaya, and again, to of as well, but not certainly not, not to fish. Now, other than these halachas, obviously there are certain other halachas that we're guided in. We're not allowed to eat bugs. There are five bugs of the ground and six of the water, um, air. There are quite a number of different insects. Basically, anything within the insect um, world we're not allowed to eat. There is one that some Svarnim still have a misora that it's not a sheritz and, and it would be allowed to, to be eaten. You need a misora for it because whether it's a locust or some type of insect, there is one type of insect that is considered kosher. Other than that, the vast, vast majority are forbidden. And this becomes a big problem for the modern, modern consumer with all of the insecticides now being forbidden because of ecological reasons. Most... <clears throat> vegetables, whether it be lettuce or various vegetables that you buy, have to be checked for bugs because eating a bug is potentially five or maybe even six losses that you violate. In addition, we have a problem called orla. Orla means the first three years of a fruit tree. When I'll to eat the fruit, the fourth year as well, the fourth year is net revai, but after that you're allowed to. The other issues in kashras are chadush. Once the, the carbon Omer is brought, the any wheat that's grown after that we're allowed to eat, but you're not allowed to eat the wheat from before that. We don't have the time to get involved in, in the issues and discussions, but that's the concept of Yosh and Chadash. The other two issues are Yayin Nesach, the wine that we drink has to be handled only by Jews, and Bishal Akum, we're not allowed to eat directly food cooked by Goyim. Now, these halachas are very complex and it's not really the time to elaborate on them. There is a Hilchas Kashras boot camp that's on the site. If you look on the site, on the shmuz.com, you can see the Hilchas Kashras boot camp, and I spent a lot of time going through each of these halachas separately, and if you're interested, you certainly can. But the basic concept here is that the Torah forbids us from eating machalas asuros because we have a neshama that will last forever, and these damage the Jewish neshama. The Jewish neshama, like the rofe, who comes to the sick person and says, you're going to live, so you have to eat this food and not eat this food. The neshama of a Jew is very, very delicate. It's created to last for eternity. And these forbidden foods damage it. And for that reason, Mr. Lasharm says that if you understood the damage that was wrought by eating tray food, you would run from it like running from a fire. And as a mushal, imagine for a minute that there were 100 cups of juice in front of us. And I said to you, you know, but four or five of them, but no more, but but four or five of them have cyanide in it. Would you take a chance? Certainly not. Cyanide will kill me. I'm not going to take a chance. It's not worth it. Silasharm explains that that's the same attitude that we should have <clears throat> towards machalas asuras to tray food. <clears throat> if I understood that tray food damages me, it hurts me, it makes me, whether it be, <clears throat> makes me less sensitive, makes me more cruel, doesn't allow my neshama to shine as it would. If I understood the damage, I would run from it like running from poison food, from food that damages me. And that's basically the concept, you are to live, and therefore the Torah warns us about all of these various foods. Now before I finish, I want to make one more point that I find very, very compelling from this parsha, And that is the area that we touched on earlier. And that is, here the Torah delineates that the two signs of a behema, that's Torah, are that it has completely split hooves and that it chews its cud. And then it, the Torah tells us very clearly there are four animals who are the exception. 
There are four animals that have one simon and not the other. What are those four animals? So the gamal, the arnevis, and the shafan. The arnevis and the shafan, we're not sure what they are. The gamal is a camel. Those animals specifically, they will ruminate, but they do not have split hooves. And the chazir, the chazir has split hooves, the pig has split hooves, and it does not ruminate. But it's very clear that these animals have one sign, and no animals have that one sign. And even more detailed is the fact that in Parshish Rei, the Torah tells us that there are only ten animals in existence that have the two signs. And it's very interesting to note, because the Ramban says what the Torah is teaching us is that these animals and these animals only have two signs. Only the ten animals that are mentioned in Parshish Rei have the two signs, and only these four have one sign. And Allah has brought in Shulchan Aruch that if you were able to eliminate by process of elimination one of the animals so you knew it wasn't from one, you could assume only these ten have it and you'd be allowed to assume it's kosher. The point being, the Torah is teaching us that of all the animals in creation, only ten have both signs and only four have one sign and not the other. And the Malbin on this parasha tells us that the Torah is doing something very, very interesting here. What the Torah is doing, in a certain sense, is risking its credibility. Because, let's assume for a minute the Torah was written by man. Wouldn't this be a foolish thing to say? Imagine that Torah was written by man, and Moses was a smart thinker, and he said, uh, you know, these are the signs of kosher. Here's the problem. The Torah is telling us that of all the animals in the world, there are only ten that have two signs, and only four that have one side. Well, the problem is that Moshe lived in wherever he lived over there. He grew up in Midian, born in Mitzrayim, grew up in Midian, and lived in the Middle East. There were huge amounts of areas that he didn't know about, huge amounts of animals that he was unaware of. In 1492, when Columbus sailed to America, they didn't even know this continent existed. The entire Americas, they called, they called the people living there Indians because they thought it was India. They didn't know America existed. So if the Torah was written by man, isn't this a foolish thing to do? Why take the risk of telling us that there are only ten animals in all of the world that have two signs and only four that have one, when you may be disproven? It's the quickest way to disprove the document. And even more telling is the fact that right now scientists count 1.5 million species of live animals, reptiles, throughout the globe. Here's the problem. Out of the 1.5 million living creatures, no one has yet found a single animal other than the 10 that have two signs and not a single animal other than the four that have one sign. And says the Malbin, from here you see a proof that Torah is Meneshemayim. If the Torah was written by God, it makes sense why God would do such a thing. Hashem created all the animals. Hashem knows which ones have two signs and which one has one. But if the Torah was written by man, it would have been the most foolish thing to lay credibility on, and it never would have been done. And says the Malbin, this is one of the proofs that Torah is Meneshemayim, the fact that despite the fact that mankind has discovered countless numbers of different animals, not a single one has been discovered other than what the Torah says. These ten have two signs, the other, these are the four that have one sign. And again, this is one of the signs that Torah is Meneshemayim.